And let's do what we always do. Let's start off and turn our notebooks over and take a look at them. And we'll uh, remind ourselves of the spiritual leadership disciplines. And again, the idea for us here is that we're um, calling the men of Grace Bible Church out to come to these leadership disciplines and to unite around them so that we're all thinking the same way about what we're supposed to do with our hearts, with the Word of God, um, before the Word of God. We're all thinking the same thing about our, our homes, our households, our household relationships. We're all thinking the same thing about gospel ministry with, within the church and outside the church, and etc. When I um, have been in, in other churches in the past, and good churches, I think. I've been encouraged. I've grown much in the churches I've been at in the past. I found that um, each of the different ministries that existed in the church were responsible to develop their own leaders for their ministry um, in all ways. And what I mean by that is your children's ministry pastor had to recruit people and he had to then care for them spiritually. Um, you know, from the ground up with stuff like are, how, how's your pursuit of God and his word um, and then of course children's ministry you've got to uniquely equip the person to do that specific ministry to be able to teach children care for children um, being a student ministries pastor I did the same thing I needed people to serve in the ministry and and so then I would have to care for them and and the way that I went about caring for those who served in student ministries, um, obviously at certain points was different than what was going on in children's ministry because we're dealing with two different animals, so to speak. Don't mean that in a bad way, but two different kinds of people, right? But we are both having to do the same thing in terms of encouraging spiritual disciplines in people. And the way that I went about it was a little bit different than the way... The children's ministry pastor went after it, which is a little bit different than the way the college guy went after it, which was a little bit different than the way the guy who was leading small groups went after it. And so if you switched from one ministry to another at some point in the church to serve in a different spot, you were hearing again now something a little bit different. And what we're trying to do with this is say, um, like for instance, in student ministries or in next generation ministries at Grace Bible Church, great, go train your people and train them to do specifically what that ministry asks them to do, requires of them. But there's one heart behind and in all of the ministries here. And that's what we're talking about in Disciplines 1, 2, and 3 primarily. Okay? Um, Josh Kelso and Josh Miles in student ministries, they don't have to come up with their own way of trying to figure out how to encourage the, the, those who are working with the students with spiritual disciplines. Because we, we know how we want to talk about spiritual disciplines. It's what we're doing here. And so there's a greater unity and, uh, and understanding throughout the whole church about how we shepherd our hearts, how we think about our homes, how we think about gospel ministry within the church and outside the church. In fact, in student ministries, um, they're actually teaching disciplines one, two, and three to the kids. Um, and we were just thinking that's... When you hit junior high... You need to start thinking about how to shepherd your heart. And now we're going to start encouraging you as a young man or a young woman in Christ. You need to care for your household. It's time to turn around and look at your mom and your dad and your siblings and say, um, here's my role in this house as a one who's 
following Christ and um, and gospel ministry in their school so that uh, you don't have to wait until you're graduated from college and a young adult to hear about these things for the first time. I'm excited to think about that, that in student ministries, at the age of 12, somebody is starting to think about these things so that in 10 years, imagine 10 years from now, if this is new to you, what you're hearing, go 10 years from now. If this becomes a, the pattern of your life, the, the spiritual discipline of your life, if you wear a rut in your life on this and all of the right ways, the good ways, imagine the fruit in 10 years. Now imagine if you're 12. And then at the age of 22, what you're going to have to be able to work with in the, in the church. I just, but look, that's, that's not a microwave thing. That's not a drive-through fast food thing. Um, what we're doing is is starting now, waiting for the long haul, planning for the long haul, and for fruit to be born in the church. Um, all in, and, and only God does that. Programs don't do that. This class doesn't do anything in its own power. It has no power. There's only one thing that has power, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Anyway, that's what we want to shepherd our hearts to. That's what we want to take into our homes, discipline too. The first place of impact must be the places where we live, right? You're going to see that even uh, how unique that was for Israel. I mean, I tell you, Israel, in their day, um, when, if they were obedient, they would have, there would have been no nation like them on earth. Uh, it would have been an absolute stunning thing to be a, an alien and a stranger passing through that land and, and coming through a village or a small town or a city. If they were obedient to what you're going to see in Deuteronomy 6, that would have been amazing. Um, households with, uh, impacted by the Word of God. Discipline 3, then we step into the lives of people in the church and outside the church, and we're primarily stepping into their lives with the gospel, and we'll look at the Apostle Paul as he did that and modeled that for the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1 and uh, chapter 1 and 2, a little bit later. Um, discipline 4 is on the qualifications for deacons. Um, you'll uh, get some assignments there that will help you to be able to start being prayerful about this uh, character qualifications in um, for deacons in 1 Timothy 3. Um, something that where you could on a daily basis uh, be praying through one of those qualifications each day of the week. Um, imagine what that would do in your life um, after a while. Um, Discipline 5 is on the hermeneutic, on how to handle scripture, how to interpret it, how to um, see the Bible as a whole, how to see it in two parts, an Older Testament and a Newer Testament. We'll talk about what that means later at the, towards the end of the year. And then lastly, Discipline 6 on the biblical vision and the gospel purpose of Grace Bible Church. On, we want to set our sights on something that never changes. and It's about the um, triune Godhead. Uh, the glory of God the Father in the cross of the Son, uh, all for the transformation of life that the Holy Spirit brings. So we want to focus our sights on that, and when we do, we find ourselves moved to fulfill a gospel purpose, which means we're going to draw in with the gospel, we're going to build up one another with the gospel, and we're going to send one another out for the gospel's ministry. So that's what we're trying to unify around at Grace Bible Church. And um, thank you guys for... You keep showing up, so thank you. And uh, it is it is so good in in our those small groups just to to talk about that stuff. Um, small group leaders, thank you for just facilitating.
those discussions and um, really appreciate you doing that. Um, there's a lot of um, that w- there's a lot that we benefit from as we listen to each other talk about our weaknesses, our strengths, and um, what goes on in our own homes and how we view our own households. So, good job. Thank you for doing that. Let's um, let's get your Bibles and let's open them up to Deuteronomy chapter six. Deuteronomy 6. If you remember, last time, two weeks ago, we did a a biblical survey uh, from the Old Testament through into the New Testament on um, just trying to draw conclusions about what does God think about household relationships. And we came to the conclusion that um, He's got an opinion about it. And He's got a strong opinion about household relationships, right? So... What we're going to do today is we're going to um, really drill down more specifically in one passage um, and, and see what one passage has to say. And then we'll try to connect it back to the rest of the Bible um, uh, at the end. But Deuteronomy 6 is where we want to be. And I want to read first just the first four verses. We're going to particularly pay attention to about verses 4 to 9. But I want to read the first four verses. Um, So you can follow along as I read Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which Yahweh your God has commanded me to teach you. Why, Moses, are you supposed to teach these to Israel? So that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. Deuteronomy is about Moses preparing Israel as they're finishing up their time in the wilderness to cross over the Jordan and go into it and possess the land. And they can't just be any kind of a, of a nation. They have to be a certain kind of nation. They're Yahweh's nation, the Lord's nation, and they have to live a certain way. Verse 2, Also that you and your son and your grandson might fear Yahweh your God. So look at generations. To keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and so that your days may be prolonged. Fearing the, the Lord is uh, looks like obeying. So that you might fear the Lord, verse 2, to keep all his statutes. If you want to know what it means to fear God, it means that you're obedient to him. Verse 3, O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it so that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as Yahweh the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So verse 3, you should listen. Now verse 4, hear, O Israel. Yahweh is our God Yahweh is one. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Let's pray and then we'll ask God to meet with us as we look at his word. Heavenly Father, we um, read these words that you wrote to ancient Israel long ago. And um, we're struck by how you desired them to be obedient to you. 
they could not claim to know you, to be yours, and then go on and live the way that they wanted to live. You are the Lord. You are the master. You are the one um, determining what the relationship looks like. And on the basis of what you did to redeem them out of Egypt from their slavery and bring them into the wilderness under your care, um, on the basis of all that you have done, you call them to live in obedience to you. Father, we're not this ancient nation, Israel. But we are your people, the church. And we are here this morning, God, to hear from you what you would say to this ancient people. And we're here to connect it through the rest of our Bible to see how in Christ you have an emphasis for us on our households. So God, help us to rightly understand this passage, to rightly interpret it, to rightly apply it as we think of uh, your heart for the household, Lord. Change us where we need to be changed. Give us hope um, in, this, in, in, the, in the face of our failures in our households. Um, let us see how you take um, dark things and turn them into light. Um, you are so kind. You're so patient. And uh, Lord, we humble ourselves under you and your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We have three main points in, uh, in our time together this morning. Just some introductory matters because if you're like me, Deuteronomy is one of those books that you may be a little familiar with, but we need to understand it a little bit better. So we're going to talk about some introductory matters first. And then we're really just going to break the passage down into its two parts that I think follow Discipline 1 and Discipline 2. Number two then... Uh, over a, a page later we'll talk about discipline one on the heart that's verses five and six and then thirdly we'll talk about the home discipline two in verses seven to nine so let's just talk a little bit introductory wise here on deuteronomy and as usual get up make yourself you know at home comfortable whatever you need to do if you got questions you can ask um, and we'll just make our way through this passage I have a quote for you uh, on what the book of Deuteronomy is really about. You can look at it there with me. It says there that God appears in a strong covenantal setting. He is the great king. He's the Lord of the covenant. The Mosaic covenant portrays God as the great king who entered into a treaty or a, a covenant with Israel so that he, God, became their God and they became his people. Um, this is what is going on in the book of Deuteronomy. God is saying, hey, we're in a special relationship. We're in a treaty together. I'm your God and you're my people. And whenever that happens, there has to be a code of conduct on how we live with each other. How you live under my leadership and how I will conduct myself toward you. And so that's what Deuteronomy is all about. It's Moses, in a, sec in a sense, giving the law again to them. They've been in the wilderness for 40 years they were denied going in right away because they were unfaithful. And now God is saying, we're about to go in. Moses is, uh, has them on the plains of Moab getting ready to cross over. And he says, let me give it to you again. Let me stress to you again that you are in a covenantal relationship with God. Okay? Here's an outline of the book that you could take a look at. Just in chapter 1 in the first five verses, Moses is described. He's the covenant mediator. He's the one standing between God and Israel helping them understand what this covenant is that God is in with Israel. 
uh, from verse 6 of chapter 1 through the rest of chapter 4, you get a little bit of the history of the covenant, how they got to where they are. And then the big bulk of the book is chapter 5 through chapter 26. Chapter 5 begins with a reiteration of the Ten Commandments. And then all of the other commandments that flow through, verse, uh, through chapter 26. Verses 27 to 30 talk about covenant sanctions. Uh, the covenant gets ratified. There's blessings and curses talked about. Uh, if you obey me, these are all the blessings that are going to come upon you. If you disobey me, these are the curses that will come upon you as a nation. And then the end of it is basically the covenant continuity. Uh, just pressing it forward as they get ready to cross over. Um, let's talk about verse 4. Verse 4 is very interesting. Um, you know this, I've used this illustration before. Uh, in your house, about this time of the year, you might be turning on your uh, your furnace in the mornings. Um, and if, if you've noticed, or, or maybe you have people in your house who wish you were turning the furnace on, uh, pleading with you to turn the furnace on, I have rooms in my house that um, are hotter than other rooms. And which ones are those? They're always the rooms that are closest to the source of heat, right? So the laundry room, which is closest to where the furnace is, is the hottest and it's the coldest in the summer. Ridiculous. You don't spend any time in the laundry room. My bedroom, which is on the farthest side of the house, is the coldest. Um, and that makes sense. We understand that. The closer you are to the source of heat, uh, the warmer you're going to be. I think what is going on in verse 4 of chapter 6 is something like that. It's, it's Israel's source of heat and affection. And that source of heat, their blazing center, is, is God himself. And as Israel draws closer to God, the warmer their affection for him will be, the warmer their love and obedience to him will be. They need to stay close to God who is their furnace, their source of heat. This is a call from Moses to Israel to not drift away from Yahweh, to not drift away from God. If they do, they'll become cold in heart toward him. Verse 4 is often called the Shema. That's the Hebrew word for hear, to hear. Um, you see it at the beginning of verse 4. Hear, O Israel. And the, the Hebrew word here, and it's like this way in the New Testament as well, but the Hebrew word for here always includes the intent to hear with obeying. It's not a matter of, hey, just listen to this. Let this sound touch your eardrum. It's no, you need to hear this and have the intent to obey it. Okay, so it's including the intent to live under what you hear. It includes the idea of ordering all of the rest of your life around this. And what is the this? It's God. It's Yahweh. It's who God is. So hear this with the intent to obey this one. Um, I have a quote there for you from Merrill. He says, To hear in Hebrew lexicography is tantamount to obey, especially in covenant settings such as this. That is, to hear God without putting into the effect the command is actually to not hear Him at all. You understand? If you hear this and you don't have any intent to obey Him, you didn't hear it. And this is in the light of all that God has done for Israel and the covenant that he has just made with them at the mountain. 
because God redeemed them from Egypt, remember, with a strong hand, and because God made a covenant with them in the wilderness, because of these things, because of what I've done, hear me with the intent to obey me, God says. He is not saying, hear me with the intent to obey me to see if I'll rescue you, to see if I will enter into a covenant with you. What we have to remember is that there is a huge foundation of God's grace under Israel already. He came to them when they were rebellious in Egypt. You'll see how rebellious they were in just a minute. He came to them and he redeemed them, not because they had become something impressive, He redeemed them because just he's gracious. And he did it for those who didn't deserve it. And he calls them out after that grace and from that grace and in that grace. And he says, obey me now. Okay, do you understand? This is not a call to obey and then I'll give you grace. Grace has already been extended and is being extended. Your Old Testament is not works-oriented with the idea that God will be gracious then. And your New Testament is grace-oriented with works to follow. No, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, and they're both the same. He lays down his grace and he says, obey me. Okay? That's what's going on with Israel. So to hear um, is to listen closely for the purpose of obedience. They must become determined to know who Yahweh is and what God has said in order to conform their beliefs and their behavior accordingly to him. We have the same principle of hearing with the intent to obey. Um, How about James chapter 1, verse 23? You know it, right? James 1, verse 23. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. You see, you've got the Old Testament principle for Israel. Hear me with the intent to obey. And you've got the church's principle in James 1. Hear me and do what I say. So, there's discontinuity in your Bible and there's continuity in your Bible. What's the discontinuity here? It's in the names of the people. Israel and then not Israel, the church. What's, continu- what's continuous in the old, from, the new to the, from the old to the new? God. God hasn't changed. What he expected of Israel is what he expects of us, and it's the same, because he's the same. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Let's talk about what it actually says. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. It's probably, up to this point in the first five books of the Old Testament, it's probably the most potent and succinct summary of who God is. Uh, It's like saying, Moses, how would you summarize God for us so far? And Moses would say, well, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. Take this God out of the midst of Israel. They grow cold in the wilderness. Take this God out of their midst once they get into the promised land, surrounded by all of the false gods of the nations, and they're instantly in big trouble. But as long as they stay near to this God, 
in the wilderness or in the promised land, they're good. There's two possible translations in verse 4. Um, most likely you have a version that reads basically what I just said. I think the NAS, the NIV, ESV, New King James Version all say, um, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The other option is, the Lord our God is one Lord. Um, what you see in front of you stresses more the uniqueness and the exclusivity of who Yahweh is as Israel's God. Um, Yahweh, our God, is the one and only Yahweh. That's the idea. The other translation focuses more on the unity of Yahweh. He's one God. The wholeness of who he is. He's not a schizophrenic being. He doesn't have parts. When you deal with him, you don't deal with one part one day and then another part another day and then another part. You know, you get the whole of who he is all of at once, all of the time. Which is a contrast to the gods of the nations around them. And, and both ideas are, are going on here, but our translation, I think, is the best one to, to, to stick with. Macintosh says, you, you'll see this quote there on your, on your worksheet, all the grammatical possibilities point in the same direction. They point to the uniqueness and the supremacy of Yahweh, God of Israel. The unity of God is stressed. God's distance, in other words, he is so unlike the invented deities of the nations, that's what's being stressed as Israel's strength, lying not only in the worship of Yahweh, but in the exclusive worship of him. That's what's being stressed here. There's only one God, our God, and therefore there's only one worship that matters, and it's the worship of this God who is Yahweh. Do not worship other gods. That's what's being implied here. Why is this so important to say? At this point, why is this so important? I want you to think with me about the context here. Um, if we could stand with them on the plains of Moab, and if you could turn around and look at their past, what would you see? Huh? Idolatry. Now, go to Ezekiel 20. I want you to see this. Help each other get there. You're moving to the right. That's right. You're looking for those crispy white pages that don't have a fingerprint on them, perhaps. But we're going to let God tell us what he saw when he went there. This is so interesting to me. Think about the patience that Israel had to wait for. And they would have known a bunch of this through oral transmission, just being told. But think about how long they had to wait. How many, how many centuries is Ezekiel writing after Moses? Moses could have told us what God found in them spiritually when he brought them out of, of Egypt. But we have to wait for Ezekiel 20 for God to tell us. Look at this. Ezekiel 20, verse 5. And say to them, Thus says Yahweh, uh, the Lord Yahweh, On the, the day when I chose Israel and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them, saying, I am Yahweh your God, on that day I swore to them to bring them out from the, the land of Egypt into a land which I had selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. I said to them, when I went to them in Egypt, what did he say? Cast away each of you the detestable things of, of his eyes and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I'm Yahweh, your God. What are they doing in Egypt for 400 years? But they rebelled against me, God says. 
and they were not willing to listen to me. And they did not cast away the detestable things in their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them, to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. Did you know that? Did you know that's a part of the story of of Exodus? God was saying, I'm just going to finish you off right now. But, verse 9, I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I took them out of the land of Egypt. And I brought them into the wilderness. And I gave them statutes and informed them of my ordinances by which if a man observes them, he will live. Also, I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies them. But what happened in the wilderness? The house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes and they rejected my ordinances by which if a man observes them, he will live. In my Sabbaths, they greatly profaned Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to annihilate them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations before whose sight I had brought them out. Also I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. Why? Because they rejected my ordinances and asked for my statutes. They did not walk in them. They even profaned my Sabbaths for their heart continually went after their idols, yet my eyes spared them rather than destroying them, and I did not cause their annihilation in the wilderness. Listen, why is this important to say right here? Because when you look back at their life, standing, they're with Moses on the plains of Moab, and you look back in Egypt, all they had been were idolaters. All they have been for the last 40 years in the wilderness is a bunch of idolaters. They're going to go for, look forward. Where are they going to go? They're going to go into a land that has seven nations that are bigger and stronger than them. And what do all of those nations have? Idols. Other gods. Why is he saying this now? What are they surrounded by? What do they have within their own hearts? Multiple gods. Just like me. And just like you, right? We learn about ourselves by reading about Israel here. The place God's people are about to go are full of gods. They're called Baals, lords. So Israel's source of heat, Yahweh, could not be more distinct than those gods. Unique, unlike them. No god anywhere had come to a nation No God anywhere has separated that nation out from the host nation and performed judgment miracles against that evil host nation like God did. God powerfully delivered and redeemed his people just like he did. Nobody has ever done that. And remember what Joshua said at the end of getting them into the promised land, Joshua 24, he said, put away from you the idols. He took them to Shechem. Remember we had that whole discussion about what went on there? So even when he gets them into the promised land, he's still appealing to this nation, put away your false gods. Why God is even dealing with them still at this point is a good question. Because he's gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. If Israel stays near to Yahweh our God, Yahweh who is one, 
There's hope for her commitment in the covenant with him. So then what's the very first thing on his mind from that? He says, okay, I'm just going to remind you, you've only got one God. He's the unique God. He's Yahweh. Look behind you. Look in front of you. Focus on him. Now, what's the first thing out of his mouth? And this takes us to number two in your outline. Discipline one. What's the first thing on his mind? You shall what? Love. The first thing on God's mind with for his people Israel is that his people would love him. And it is to be a love from the inner man. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, all your inner man, all of who you are inwardly. A love that consumes all of who you are at the core of who you are. And that is totally unique. Never before had any God, and they're all false gods, but never before had any false God, no God of Egypt, no God of the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Hittites, ever communicated such a request to his devotees. In fact, no ruler, no human ruler has ever even thought to say this to their subjects, to love me. Well, I don't know, maybe they did, but what a God complex they would have. Matthew Henry says, Did ever any prince make a law that his subjects should love him? Did you get that? I mean, he made a law to love me. Did any prince ever do that? Yet such is the condescension of the divine grace that this is made the first and the great commandment of God's law, that we love him and that we perform all other parts of our duty to him from a principle of love. What a great God that he wants us to love him. So what does he mean in verse 5 when he says, um, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Why does he do this splitting thing, talking about the heart, the soul, and the might? Um, He is not sending Israel on a splicing analysis um, assignment. Um, Israel was not to go run in their lives and find where their heart was, and once they found it, gather all of it up and love God with what they found and then go run over here and find where their soul was and then gather it all up and love God with it and then run over here to find their might. You see, that's not what's going on at all. He's not trying to split man up. He's actually trying to do the exact opposite and summarizing man from three different perspectives. Right? The inner man and the might of the man. The heart, the soul, and the might. Because if you get the inner man, you get what? You get the man. You have the man. That's the only way to get the man. Is to get the inner man. Your heart is your command central of who you are. It's where all your thoughts are birthed. It's where all of your words are birthed. It's where your attitudes and your deeds and your desires your enjoyments, everything are birthed there. They are weaned there. They are matured there. They're sent off to college there into maturity. Everything comes from your heart. If you get the soul of man, the heart of man, you get the whole life. Same thing with the idea of strength. I have a 
quote there for you from Macintosh on strength. Strength is not so much a person's physical power as it is his intensity. So find your intensity and with all of your intensity, love the Lord your God, he says to Israel. God wants earnestness in a person's love. He desires not merely that we possess a faith or love, but that our faith or our love should possess us. You need to be possessed by this. Have an intensity for it. So here's my question for you. Are you ready? I don't know what your thoughts are about Mosaic Law as a Christian. Maybe one of those areas you're like, I don't understand that. I'm going to have to study that someday and get all that thing figured out. But when you think of Mosaic Law, do you think first about love, loving God? When you think about Exodus and you think about Leviticus and you think about Numbers and Deuteronomy, do you think about loving God? Because God does. When you think about New Testament commands through Jesus, do you think about love for God, love for Jesus? Listen, in the Old Testament, God's people, Israel, they were not guilty before him first and foremost because they broke dietary laws or because they didn't keep the Sabbath like Ezekiel said or because they didn't keep the social laws or the sacrificial laws. That's not why they were primarily guilty before God. They were guilty before God first and foremost because they did not what? They didn't love God with an all-consuming love. And because they did not love God with an all-consuming love, they were unconcerned to obey Him in dietary laws. You see, you got to get the the cart in the right place and the horse in the right place. If there is love in the heart for God, what He says, I don't care if it's about diet, I don't care if it's about what to do with my neighbor, I don't care what it's to do with my field and you don't want me to mix seed together, I don't care what it is, I love you. I'll do it. The closest, I think, contemporary issue for us or illustration for us um, on this covenant idea is probably the covenant of marriage. The marriage covenant, when, when you're standing up there and, and you're, you're, that pretty girl is looking across at you, you, you two are both setting out, did you know you're setting out, in a sense, laws before each other? Vows. Promise me, before God and all of these people, promise me that you will, and you will, and you will, and you won't, and you won't, and you won't. Promise me these things. You tell me this. Why does a bride never go, man, this is just so law-like. <laughs> You're always about do this, don't that. Why does, she never, why does that never even cross her mind? Because she loves you for some strange reason. Right? And you, her. Right? No bride, no groom on his or her wedding day views those vows as law because of love. This command from God to love God, it reflects and it says much about Him. It tells us about His attitude towards us, towards Israel. So we have this repeated for us, don't we? It tells us much about Him. 
Macintosh says <clears throat> Jesus would later insist the same thing in John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Right? Can you, can you think about this? I don't know how many times you've read that and maybe never really thought about it. But here is a rabbi in Israel telling his disciples to love him. And they know the greatest command. Have you thought about that? His disciples could hardly have missed the point of the statement in which Jesus insisted on the same devotion that Israel had been commanded to give Yahweh. Yikes. Here's a, here's a rabbi from Nazareth saying, love me with my commandments. That sounds like God. It's because it is, right? Amen. Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40, you can write them down. That's the Jesus reiterating the greatest command. You can write down 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Paul there says in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, he says, if anyone does not love the Lord... He is to be accursed. You see, that's your, that's your biggest problem, is you don't love God when you come into this world. And, and you are accursed. That has to change. Ephesians 6.24, the very end of the letter of Ephesians. Those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. There's the focus. And, and let's go to John 21. I want you to see this one. This is just, this is just fun. John 21. <clears throat> Peter has blown it big time. Jesus is raised from the dead. Peter is, is so despondent, so undone by what he has done in, in betraying the Lord, that he uh, de- denying the Lord, that he said, I- I'm going fishing. Now listen, he hadn't fished for three years. And so when he says, I'm going fishing, what is he saying? I'm going back to what I was. I, this is hopeless. And so they're out fishing, and you know the story, that all night they have caught absolutely nothing. And then there's a guy on the beach, and he calls out to them, and he says, put the, put the net on the other side of the boat, which is ridiculous, right? It sounds like the kind of, sounds like the kind of advice a carpenter would give. Um, but put the, note on the, put the net on the other side of the boat and they drop it down in and there's so many fish that have been appointed to swim into that net by God that they pull it up, the boat starts to sink and John says to Peter, it's the Lord. Oh, you think? <laughs> and so Peter puts his clothes on because he was stripped down to work and he dives into the water and he swims for the beach and he has this interchange with them. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, are you going to stop being so stubborn now? Simon, are you going to start reading your Bible more? What does he say? Simon, do you love me? Why did he ask that? You and I know exactly why he asked that, because that is at the heart of everything. 
do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to them, tend my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Yeah, please. Um, like I noticed in that passage that uh, Jesus uses phileo uh, and agapao or something to mean love. Uh, why does he use two different words? Because um, here's, here's a really profound answer. Because he can. Because there's not a huge distinction. You're going to find these words uh, being, um, they have overlap. Some people want to make a big, big distinction that phileo is brotherly love and agape love is, is um, you know, the, the self-giving, sacrificial love. And that's true. But the problem is, is you'll find some texts where there's a, a switch on those words being used to, to communicate similar idea. He just did because, probably for emphasis, uh, like you would if you asked the question, same question twice, you might change a word. Not because you were changing an entire meeting or you were trying to draw out now something completely different that you didn't ask the first time, but just to show comprehensiveness. So it's like the fullness of that. Even when, when Jesus says, he restates the greatest commandment, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, mm-hmm. soul, and strength. Yeah. in the mind. Yeah. Um, kind of to say, you know, in case you didn't understand everything, let me throw the mind in there too so that you understand that it's, it's the fullness. That's right. That's good. So what's the foundation of your relationship with Jesus Christ? From our side. It's that we love him. Okay? That's what it's all about. Peter needed to remember that, and you know what? You need to remember that, because you're going to make big, big promises to God and break them, just like Peter. And at the foundation of your relationship with Jesus is is love because of what he has done. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 6. God's people Israel, they needed to stay close to this God. He's provided for them a means by which their comprehensive love for him had to be kept up had to be maintained. How, how is this love going to be promoted? How is this love going to be nurtured? How is this love not going to wither and undergo decay? Well, verse 6. These words shall be on your heart. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Notice where these words must first advance. Where do they need to find their resting place, their dwelling place? in the inner man. Love me with all of your inner man. Here's my word to help you. Write these things. Get these things on your heart. Love for God must move towards God's word in order to bring it the heart to God. Um, I want to I have you look at another... Jesus taught the same thing. I, periodically, I want to kind of run race to the New Testament to show you this. Go to Luke 8. Keep your hand over in Deuteronomy 6 or put something there to 
so we can get back there quickly. But look at Luke 8. This is the parable of the sower. Watch this. His disciples had questioned him as to what he meant about the parable, verse 9. And in verse 10 of Luke 8, he said, To you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard the word of God. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their, what? Heart. Does the devil know what he needs to do to stop this whole thing that God wants? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Let these words be on your heart. The devil comes to take the word away from the heart. Okay? He knows exactly what he's doing. Why? So that they will not believe and be saved. That's why the devil takes the word from their heart. Verse 13, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while in a time of temptation, they fall away. That tells you that there's different kinds of belief. Um, There's a belief that is not saving belief, and it falls away. Demons have belief, don't they? James teaches that. Verse 14, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity, but the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, and they hold it fast, and they bear fruit with perseverance. In other words, God's intent is that the word would come down deep into a good heart. And the first question that should be asked is, how on earth do I get that good heart? But you see, God's intent is that the word would come into contact with the heart. We've talked about this before with Discipline 1. The word and the heart are intertwined. Luke 24, uh, when he's talking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, They say later, once he disappears, did not our hearts burn within us as he was telling us all these things from the Old Testament? Hebrews 4, the word is living and active, uh, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's intent all along is that the word would impact the heart. Go back to Deuteronomy 6. And look at this quote from Matthew Henry. God's words must be laid up on our heart so that our thoughts may be daily conversant with them and employed about them, and thereby the whole soul may be brought to abide and act under the influence and the impression of those words. This immediately follows upon the law of loving God with all your heart, for those that do so will lay his word in their hearts both as an evidence and effect of that love and as a means to preserve and increase it. He that loves God loves his Bible. I love that. He that loves God loves his Bible. That's what Discipline 1 is all about. A spiritual leader in the church is someone who constantly brings his heart to the Word of God so that God might graciously reveal himself to that man through those words. The spiritual leader's love for God then gets fanned into a flame there and then turns the spiritual leader back again to the words so that his love for God might be guided into proper expressions of obedience. You see, it's this vicious, wonderful frenzy. The word reveals God to you. It inflames your love for him, drives you back to his word so you know how to obey him. That's your life from here on out until you die. 
And you've got to be the one to drag your heart before the Word of God all the time and keep that love fanned to a big flame. Every Christian man is called to that. Every Christian man. Every Christian woman is called to that. But especially the leaders in the church must be well-disciplined in this, guys. Right? To be an example for the rest. Strive to become, guys, that kind of a well-disciplined man with the Word of God in your heart and your love for God. The church needs men like that. The men of this church, the highest compliment that could ever be paid to this church, which the church would say praise God for, because the church doesn't do it, would be that the men of that church, they love God. They love Jesus. And they love His Word. Let's talk about discipline too. Number three in your outline, the home. This is so great. In Israel, these words had to advance beyond the man, beyond the husband, beyond the father to his home, into his wife and his children. Look at verse 7. Without any break or any pause or any transition, it's just next, you shall teach them diligently to your sons. Teach them diligently. I've got two quotes for you to kind of help you understand what this idea of teach them diligently means. First, frequently repeat these things to them. That's the idea of teaching them diligently. Repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. Try all ways of instilling them into their minds. You try to get it across this way, try to get it across this way. Making them pierce into their hearts. As in sharpening a knife, it is turned first on this side and then on that side. It's like sharpening a knife. It's the same action over and over, just shifting the side. That's the idea in this, teach them diligently. Another idea, the next quote, the image is that of an engraver of a monument who takes a hammer and a chisel in his hand and with the painstaking care etches a text into the face of a solid slab of granite. The sheer labor of such a task is daunting indeed. But once done, the message is there to stay. That's the idea. Teach it diligently. In other words, it's not a walk in the park. It's not just going to happen. You're just not going to say it the first time and they're going to get it. So how do we summarize so far? Here's what's going on so far. God's intent for Israel was that they were to come into direct contact with Him. He is their God. He is the only God. And they were to express their love for Him by coming into contact with His words, which would enable them to know how to obey Him. And then those precious words were to be advanced diligently where? Into the household. Now, that's what I want to say. What a nation. What a nation. They were to be. If you were to walk into that nation, you would see something different if they were obedient to it. Verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them. Watch this. When you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise up. Let's get to the bottom of this. When you sit and when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise up. Listen. When are you not supposed to talk about it? Not. All the time, upon any occasion, within your house, outside of your household. Impress the Word of God on the children. It doesn't matter if it's an occasion of inactivity. You're just sitting. 
It doesn't matter if you're active, you're walking. It doesn't matter if you're at the end of your day, which in many ways was the beginning of their next day. When you lie down, when you get up, the book ends on your day. It's to be the impressing of the word of God upon the heart and the mind of those in the household. But that's not enough. Look at verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, in verse 8, and in verse 9, most commentators believe that this was to be taken figuratively or metaphorically. And some even allowed for it to be done literally, like they made little things that would be on their hands that would hang from their garment, and they had their phylacteries, little leather box that hung between their eyes, and they etched on their doorposts and over their house and put all these things. I tend to say, I think he means them to do that. Um, but it's obviously not just being done for that sake. It's to be done for a, a greater purpose. But, but the word of God would have been worn on the person, um, on the body of the Israelite. I like what these two quotes bring out in that. The commandments were to be sovereign over individual Israelites. Yeah, is it on the next page? I don't know. They were to serve as constraints or guides on their hands and as mental checks upon their thinking. Get that? You know, it's on your hands and it's on your head. So whatever your hands are doing, the word of God is to impact what your hand is doing. Whatever your mind is thinking the word of God is to be there. The purpose of using such symbolism was to connect God's law with the everyday routine matters of life. Nothing was to be considered outside the scope of his authority. Can you imagine as you are working and your things are around your hand, you'd be like, what's around my hand? Oh yeah, God's word. Spurgeon talked about how the phylactery would dangle and always be in your sight. You could always see it, always be kind of in your peripheral vision. He says, Thou shalt see by them, thou shalt see with them, and thou shalt see through them. I think that's the idea. What a help for them. Verse 9, You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The principle was... Um, to be spiritually caught by them here was that it was to be brought into every sphere of life physically putting the words on your on your um, in verse 9 on your doorposts of your house and on your gates okay so you get up in the morning and you leave your house and as you're walking out the gates what do you see you're going to go into the community you're going to go into your village what do you see God's word You've been out in the community all day long, been out in the fields working, and you come home, you're on your commute home, and you come in through the gate, what do you see? And you get to the doorpost of your house, and you're about to see your wife and your kids, what do you see? God's Word. It's pretty ingenious for Israel. One more quote. The form of the commandment is in any case most significant. After ordering that the covenant commandments be worn on the person of the faithful Israelite, Moses expanded the sphere of covenant claim to the house and then to the village. In this manner, the person 
and his entire family and the community would become identified as the people of Yahweh, whose word was everywhere. And what a nation this was to be. Um, You never saw anything like this in any nation anywhere. Well, what I want to do is I want to remind us a little bit of what we covered last time. That's what Israel was supposed to be. Remember as we traced forward into the New Testament, that, that's where we really particularly, I mean, we, we gain so much seeing what, what God is like in this text and what his intent is like, uh, what his intentions are, what his expectations are. We see what Israel needed. We're, we're just like Israel. Um, we see many similarities brought over into the New Testament of loving the Lord your God with all your heart and that we are to be hearers of the word and not only doers, uh, hearers not only but doers also. And um, let me just remind you of some main points. We're not going to go through all of these again because this is what we covered last time in the New Testament. But let me just remind you of the impact that one person can have on the entire household. Do you remember this? Um, You have Cornelius in Acts 10 who wanted to use his household as a platform for the gospel. And he did. And it was a tremendous platform for ministry. You guys need to be thinking that way about your households. Um, Think of how they can become a platform for ministry. Lydia was the same way in Acts 16 in the Philippian jailer. In the early church, just one person's interaction with the gospel made a profound impact on the entire household. That's incentive for you to not skip over your household, people you live with. Take advantage of your household. God has an intent with it. And remember, uh, the devil knows how important it is. Remember that there is an attack on the home in 2 Timothy 3. We talked about in Titus 1, after giving the qualifications for elders. There are men who are upsetting whole families, upsetting whole households with their wrong doctrine. And notice this. This is, this is really interesting. I didn't draw this out last time we were together. In Titus 1, the impact that's coming on the household is not coming from the big bad wolf of the world, but from religious people in the community acting like teachers, teaching households doctrines that upset the household. So the attack on the family doesn't come from the surrounding pagan world in those contexts, but from the false religious world. That's Titus 1, verses 10 and 11. And the question you've got to ask yourself is this, am I ready to defend my household against that? What equipping do I need to go through that I can stand firm as a guard, as a sentry on my family, for my family? So false religious teaching doesn't find even one spot of soil to get rooted in. We also talked last time about how the family, the home, can become an obstacle to the gospel. That's those passages in the gospels, Matthew 10, Luke 9, Matthew 12. Um, Jesus said some pretty strong words about um, the role of the family in comparison to the role of the gospel advancing uh, through Israel and then even into the world. Um, You are to... With all that we've seen in the Bible, you are to pay special attention to your households. But you are not to put your households above the gospel. Right? 
An Old Testament way of saying it would be what um, God said to Eli in 1 Samuel. Why do you honor your sons above me? Jesus' way of saying it is um, uh, if the gospel comes into your life um, and causes problems in your dad is, is, is a, or your mother or your daughter is a problem, um, you follow me. Sometimes there's going to be wonderful things that will happen. The gospel will penetrate one life and then you'll have a Cornelius, Lydia, Philippian jailer moment. And then there will be other times when the gospel will come into one life and the family will never be the same. But what is supreme is the gospel. And you must labor with your household to bring, to not set your household up at the same height as the gospel, but to set your household what? Under the gospel. Then you will always have your household in the right place. And you will find yourself tempted, we talked about this in our small group earlier this morning, to, to honor your family above or as high as the gospel. And you won't say things that you should say. And, and maybe you'll say things you shouldn't say because you haven't put the gospel in the right place. You want to be faithful to the gospel above all things. But we talked about last time, leading a wife, it requires a strong grasp on the gospel. Well, how does Paul talk about your role of loving your wife? Uh, just like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And he goes on to talk about the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If you don't know about the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross, the way, your ability to love your wife is diminished. So you must be um, a student of the gospel. You must be a student of what Jesus did in giving himself up for the church. So that if God makes you a wife someday or a husband someday brings you a wife, maybe he'll, he'll never make you a wife. I promise you that. We have that right now. Um, but if he gives you a wife, you'll have an idea. You need to be strong in the gospel. New Testament models of marriage are, are, are marriages that are put under and into the gospel mission to fulfill the gospel mission. The marriage of Priscilla and Aquila. You even see in the qualifications for the leadership of the local church that the household cannot be ignored. A man who's playing leapfrog over his household uh, just to get to ministry and caring for people is not a man that you want to have leading the church. And you can go through those in more detail on your own. But, you know, what... What we're trying to do, what we're trying to encourage you to do as a, as a man of God is we, we want to see you get a well-engraved pattern of shepherding your heart and shepherding your household. That the Word of God would be central in both of those pursuits, both of, the, both of those spiritual disciplines. Become that kind of man. Set yourself on a trajectory, on a course, on a path that you will make that the focus of your life the rest of your life. You will not perfect it. You will not gain uh, perfection in it. You will stumble and you will fall. You will go through seasons where you'll feel like it's just going so easily. It just comes naturally for me to read my Bible and pursue God through His Word and to care for the people in my household. And then God will bring you to a season of life where you will find that you have coldness of heart and you will do everything you can to come to the Word of God, to heat it up, and it just 
doesn't feel like it's heating up. You may have that for a while, and it doesn't care. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what happens in that. You keep doing the discipline because you know that's where God has called you to be. So set yourself on that trajectory. That's what we're calling you to. Get after this in your life. Andy. Yeah. Uh, most of you who are, any of you who are married with, with little ones already have that. Um, uh, you know, I think God, God made it, the gospel so wonderful, so um, extensive, that it's not like for my wife, I have to shepherd her in my household with one set of truth. That works for her because she's a believer. And, and, and I'll be honest, I'm not sure where my children are at. There's many encouraging things to see with where they're at and things I'd like to still see more of. But it's not like in not knowing certainly where they're at, it's not like, well, I've got to come up with a different set of truth for them. The one thing, the gospel, is what all people, no matter what they are, where they're at in life, need. Um, believers need reminding in it need to be strengthened with it, need to be reminded of its equipping power and what it has accomplished in the life. And unbelievers in the household need to be called to it to believe it, to repent. So I think, you know, first off, on a real simple level, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, I know. But yeah, putting the gospel in front of of the people and asking them, where are you at with it? You know? Andy. Um, So like, so, would there be like a balance of um, addressing like every single thing that you would say with the gospel versus like being gracious and letting some things slide, so to speak? Yeah. Yeah, it, you, I don't know. I'll let some of the other guys talk about this, but that's just a, a learning process of how to do it, and, and every person in the household is different. Um, you might have one in your household that um, you could address every single thing that is said to them, and they have such a constitution that it doesn't, um, they don't feel nitpicked at. You might have somebody else that you do that to, and, and they're crushed in their spirit. And um, you need to know the people in your household well enough. You don't want to be a nitpicker on everything. Whatever you can overlook, overlook. Um, and what you feel like you need to address, address patiently. And I, I'll tell you this. Before you address it, pray. And pray for them to see it. Um, I have seen in, in my past, and in, early on in our marriage, where Kim and I were trying to help each other grow, that... God addressed many things in us um, just by praying for each other. The things that would be of concern to her about me, she would pray for me, and, and a week or two later, I would talk about and, and was taken care of. Um, God brought me to, to see what I needed to see, and same thing with her. And so um, pray. And, and you're just going to have to learn a, um, a balance and a wisdom that comes with how much to talk about each thing with overlook when you can 
Yeah. What, what about some of the others? What have you learned? What have you found in your households with that? Every conflict is, you should run to every conflict. Every conflict is an opportunity to insert the gospel into the conversation. Um, look at conflicts in the past, whether it's with roommates or when your children are misbehaving. Run to that. Yeah. Embrace it. Don't be afraid to bring it up mm-hmm. because I don't want to rock the boat. Um, man, God has put that conflict right there as a, a golden right apple to pluck, and it's a way to insert the gospel. Good. What else with that? Yeah, Scott. Very helpful is to praise publicly, to encourage publicly. Excellent. But to correct privately. Wow. The person's part is less than you praise them publicly and like them less than coming in privately. That's really good. It's really good. If, if, especially if you're in a season of life with somebody in your household where it seems like the only thing that um, it seems like the, the, the only thing that's going on over and over is, is just the need to admonish. You need to labor to um, be looking for the areas of growth and encouragement and encourage and encourage and say, I see this, I see that. Um, and if we should be doing that anyway with each other because there is going to come a time when I'm going to need you to admonish me. And, um, and, and, and admonish an unruly behavior and, and um, behavior that's um, unbiblical needs warning. And whether or not I have encouraged you or not yet, I need to warn you. But if you can be encouraged and grace can be given and if you can do that with me um, it just helps the person realize that they're not always just coming to me when there's something wrong Um, we can grow a lot from that the other thing to think about in what uh, in dealing with you know things in the household um, we talked about this in our small group earlier this morning is always go to the heart whatever it is you see um, or here, you need to have, you need to develop the skill of saying, why did you say that? What, what's going on? Even say, you know, I sense that this is what you did, but it, it seems like there's something else going on. What, what help share with me what's what you're thinking right now? And a lot of times you'll catch, you know, especially kids, you'll catch them off guard because they're not thinking about what's going on here. They're just saying and doing whatever they feel like at the moment. And you may catch them off guard. And you may need to be patient and say, well, why don't you think about that? And then we'll we'll have a conversation again. Um, You might even want to give them some scripture to go take away and um, read. That will help them think about the heart. Take them to Mark 7. Um, The heart, you know, out of the heart comes all these evil things. And um, let them think about that. And then come back and say... Tell me what's going on. What do, what do you see? Um, you know, just learning to ask good questions that will get beyond just the behavior, because you're not just trying to modify behavior merely. You're really trying to go after the heart, and um, that's a skill that you develop over time. So, what else, guys? Anything else you see?
Brian. Yeah, especially younger ones in your family will look up to you and, look, they know you're a sinner. They see it every day. But they have a, a tendency to think of you as so much in a different place that you've, you, you, don't even, you can't even identify with where I'm at. And one of the things you can immediately do is, is what Ryan said. Put yourself immediately at the place where you identify with them more than they understand. And that is that you're as lost, you're as wayward, you have a propensity to walk away from God as much as they do and they need to hear that from you and that the only difference for you is Jesus um, everything it's great you can have a, you can have a conversation with your daughter about her slothfulness in algebra homework and there's a direct connection to the heart and to the gospel at least I've found um, it, it's all connected you, and it's just a matter of practicing that and walking that together and you're going to do that really poorly and then you'll learn, you'll do it well sometimes yeah. Brandon Omri. I can remember when our kids were like toddlers and it just seemed like all day long it was just correction, discipline, correction, discipline. And I can remember putting them to bed and thinking, God, protect their, protect their minds because at the end of the day, if they're laying there in bed thinking, my daddy or my mommy <coughs> spanked me all day today. And that's what they remember. 
Uh, and especially if you don't always do that well, if there's anger when there shouldn't be, um, that that it, it crossed my mind early with them to say, uh, to, to make sure that I spent significant time at bedtime with them telling them, um, I love being your daddy. And I can't believe that you get to be my son, you get to be my daughter, and you, you make me happy. Do you know that? To actually tell your kids that, to tell your wife that, at the end of a day of whatever's going on, let that be the last thought on their mind. Um, that regardless of what happened, you you love them and you you love being their daddy. You love being her husband. Um, I think that goes a long way of in, in uh, communicating a, a sense of grace and um, the kind of environment where you want them to not lose heart. Um, so, Brian. One more that comes to mind. Um, we need to please practice and get, try to get good at asking for forgiveness because you're going to mess up. And that's another opportunity to show them Show your kids and your wife and your roommates that how you go through the process of rooting out sin. It might have just think of it as a, a tree, and, and on the leaf was written something that you said. And and like Scott reminded us, root it out. Find the root of that, and then go to ask forgiveness to that son or daughter or roommate. And you said something hmm. not good. Um, help them to see how you went through the process to go from the leaf to the to the branch, to the root, and say, when I said that, I, I was making myself an idol. I wanted to be my way. And please forgive me for that. I, I, I did that, and I sin. And, and then and then get back to the gospel quickly. Praise God that he, mm. he, um, he died for that sin, too. Please, that's hard to do with a 13-year-old unbelieving son who's really misbehaving. Mm. He's really acting badly, but, but I acted even worse. Um, hmm. Let them see that that's a humbling thing. You um, should be, as Scott said in the past, be life, lifetime, lifelong, make it a lifestyle of repentance. Hmm. <coughs> Anything else, guys? That's good. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for. Well, I, I thank you for the wisdom that you've put in this room. Um, these men who have. Um, just experience life from the vantage point that they are in and that um, or there's a, a host of resources here for us to draw upon from one another as we try to figure out how to bring the gospel into our households, Lord. I pray that you would um, build and strengthen our relationships with each other. I pray, God, that you would help us to make well-worn paths from one another to one another so that we can um, approach one another um, to learn and to ask questions and to ask for help and so that we can also just be approached and cared for and encouraged and warned where there is deficiency in our life. Uh, Lord, help us to establish that with each other, to nurture those kinds of relationships with each other. Thank you most of all for your son Jesus and that um, for every failure in the household. Um, for us who trust him, every single one is born away from your sight, is gone 
and is no longer uh, an offense in your sight. Uh, But he um, who knew no sin became my sin so that I might become the righteousness of God in him. Lord, thank you for the good news and the hope of the gospel. Help us to keep that before each other. Um, And we ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys so much for today. And uh, you guys are dismissed.